Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Michael Foley. He is professor of patristics at Baylor University, author and editor of many works, including Drinking with the Saints, The Sinner's Guide to a Holy Happy Hour. His new work is a handsome four-volume translation of works by St. Augustine. Welcome, Professor Foley. Thank you so much. Tell us first, what are the works, uh, these these. Uh, uh, these dialogues. These aren't the most uh, famous works of Augustine. What are they? They are definitely not the most famous, but they really are among the most interesting. After St. Augustine had his conversion experience uh, in the garden in Milan, he uh, went on retreat and wrote four dialogues. They're in the style, actually, of a Ciceronian dialogue, and he wrote them so early in his uh, you know, Christian discipleship that he wasn't even baptized yet. So he wrote these as a catechumen. Volume 1 is Against the Academics. Now, was this written last year? The, so I translated the first four dialogues. No, and no, I'm, provided... not, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just joking. Against the academics. Oh. It, it sounds such, <laughs> it's not such, such a, modern, a modern topic, yes, but, but that's St. Augustine, right? He seems so modern to us. He seems so contemporary, yeah? Oh, absolutely. I'm sorry I didn't get the joke. <laughs> um, and, and as an academic, I'm, I'm the first to say one should always be against the academics, so <laughs> I, I, I concur um, but it's uh, the academics here are the academic skeptics. So they are a particular school of skepticism, which Augustine was a part of earlier in his life. And he uh, he turned against them. Um, he Well, yeah, he it, it's it's a fascinating title against the academics. The other title for it, which Augustine also gave it is on the academics. So he's not entirely opposed to them, but he does have some criticisms. And that's the subject of the first dialogue. And why did he choose the dialogue format? Excellent question. He loved the dialogue format in his earlier writings. And what's interesting is that after he is ordained a priest, he no longer writes in the dialogue genre. So there, there definitely was something conscious about his decision. I think he wrote in the dialogue form because the dialogue genre is ideally suited to prompting 
a certain kind of intellectual stimulation in the reader. Augustine is very interested in helping his reader have the same kinds of intellectual breakthroughs that he had that made his conversion possible. So that's the good news, and the, and the dialogue really does that well, which is why Plato wrote dialogues, Aristotle wrote dialogues, even though we don't have any of them extant, Cicero wrote dialogues. But he stopped writing dialogues after he was ordained to the priesthood, and I suspect the reason why is that dialogues are great, but they really only work with an educated elite. You, you have to be relatively well-educated to have the patience to go through a dialogue. Yeah. And I think Augustine realized as a priest, he, could know, he, had to, he had to tend to the whole flock. He couldn't just be a priest for the elite. He also had to be the priest for what he calls the little ones, um, the, the, the less educated Christians. So he cho- after that, he wrote in, a, in different kinds of genres that could reach a wider audience. Yeah. The, the, I, I will say your translation is very fluent. It's, it's very readable uh, all, all the way. It, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. To, to go through it. But I imagine that the success of a dialogue uh, relies in part on the quality of the conversance. You can't, you, you can't have paper tigers. You, you, you can't have straw men serving as your interlocutors, correct? That is correct, yes. How would you characterize the participants in, in this first dialogue? Well, one characteristic of a platonic dialogue is that there clearly is one master, Socrates, and several inferior interlocutors. They're not paper tigers, but, you know, no one, no one can really go toe-to-toe with Socrates. It's similar in the Kasikiakum dialogues. Augustine is the, the clear heavyweight and he's surrounded by people of different degrees of wisdom. Uh, his friend Olypius is there, who is also very smart, but probably doesn't have the same philosophical chops as Augustine. There are two dis- uh, uh, young students, Lacentius and Tragedius, and they each have their own strengths and weaknesses. Again, not dumb, but kind of young and uh, you know, still getting their education. And then there is Monica, Augustine's mother, who is uneducated, but deeply pious and perceptive and tough. And she is a wonderful conversation partner with Augustine. Um, so that is the cast of characters for the first three dialogues. The fourth dialogue, the soliloquies, is a very interesting departure because the soliloquies is a conversation between Augustine and his reason. Two characters are actually one character in two roles. And in that dialogue, Augustine, the character, is the subordinate. 
So Augustine, the character, is sort of calling all the shots in the first three dialogues, but he is forced to take a subordinate role in the fourth dialogue. Hmm. Hmm. Well, Monica's Monica. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> she's a she, she's a daunting presence, uh, in, in, indeed. Uh, you know, there's a great quote uh, in in this dialogue. I, I actually wrote it down as as I was reading. Only by a quest for the truth, therefore, can the happy life be granted to man, even if he cannot find the truth. What well, was this? I mean, Augustine believes you, you can find the truth, but if someone can't, is this his position for everyone, would you say? Well, I will say that, no, in answer to your question, the short answer is no. Um, but what all four dialogues have in common is... Um, an obsession with happiness and how to get it. You could say that uh, it is the, the quest for happiness that sort of unites all, all four dialogues. And in the first dialogue, Lacentius thinks that you can be happy merely by seeking the truth. Whereas Tragedius maintains you can only be happy by attaining the truth. And Lacentius has a point that the search for the truth does make you happier than not searching for the truth, but you won't be happy until you get what you want, what you're looking for. And so that's kind of the, the debate in the first dialogue. Hmm. What are the main features of academic skepticism at that time? Is this sex, Sextus Empirica, Empiricus and... The Greeks. So he dif So the academic skeptics differed from other skeptics um, because, unlike the other skeptics, they were worried about the political effects of their skepticism. If you believe that the truth can't be discovered and you can't really know anything with certainty that could actually have a paralyzing effect on your actions, personal or political. And so this, the academic skeptics came up with a theory of probability or plausibility, which allowed them to still deny that you could ever attain absolute truth, but, you, but by acting on a basis of probability, you could still be a responsible moral agent. Hmm. That's, that is the distinction that comes up repeatedly between the true and the probably true. And would yep. Augustine say, the probably true isn't true. Truth is, well, what's truth is truth. Truth is truth. Um, what's interesting about the so-called against the academics, however, is that he actually kind of grants them 90% of what they're saying. He, he actually does admit um, that any information we have that is mediated through the senses is not absolute truth. You know, that your, your senses can't deliver 100% truth. But... He goes on to say that, that the academics are wrong when they say that the truth can't be known. The truth can be known, 
um, through the mind. And so the academics are, are wrong in denying that the truth can be attained, but he actually says they're, they're rather astute about the, the limitations of sensible data. How does this dialogue on the academics conclude? I mean, we, we, know, we know the Socratic dialogues. They, they come to, usually come to a pretty solid conclusion. What do we have here? The, against the academics ends in a bizarre way. It ends with Augustine doing this kind of long monologue where he satirizes the academics. It's, it's actually kind of the genre of a farce. He makes fun of their idea of probability as being uh, a reasonable grounds for political action. So it, it ends in this really kind of zany way. Uh, it, it, he's, he's laughing. He's, he's making fun of them. And this, um, this sort of takes the tension out of the dialogue and um, allows him to then end with kind of a, a religious conclusion. He, he does provide rational grounds for rejecting skepticism, but then he goes on to say, after he makes fun of them, um, even if my rational critique is flawed, I have faith, hope, and love. And that's enough certainty for me. That's a nice conclusion. It is. <laughs> it, these are wonderful dialogues because basically what they give you is kind of the, the pre, preambles of the faith. They engage philosophical problems on philosophical grounds. They wrestle with them. They provide a philosophical solution. But at the end of each dialogue, there is also the religious solution. And you see how the Catholic faith can answer some of these philosophical questions. So he really is sort of laying the groundwork for an intelligent appropriation of the faith. As we move to volume two, what situation do we have here with the happy life? Volume two on the happy life is such a delightful dialogue. One of my, I signed it in class one day and one of my students said, this is the most beautiful platonic dialogue I've ever read. Um, it's, it's probably Augustine's most joyful writing. There are four Kosikiakum dialogues. Most of them involve a moment where one of the characters weeps. Others involve laughter. The De Beata Vita on the Happy Life is the only dialogue where there are no tears and only laughter. The occasion is Augustine's birthday, and he cooks up a feast of words instead of a birthday cake um, on this occasion. And then this conversation, this feast of words, lasts three days where they discuss the happy life and what it, what it means to have union with God and you know, how man becomes happy, all that good stuff. 
you lay out an, quote, Augustinian geography. What is that? He has a very interesting map that he draws in his cover letter to On the Happy Life, he, where he describes souls that are adrift. It's a, it's a maritime imagery, and some of these souls come back to the, the harbor of safety sooner than others. And he describes the, uh, the harbor as philosophy, but it's blocked by this mountain of pride, which a lot of philosophers get stuck on. But the goal is the dry land uh, that it lies beyond the harbor. And so he uses that to describe his own journeying, how he had he basically drifted out to sea and by a series of providential winds found his way back home. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. One of the purposes early in the dialogue is a definition. Just what exactly is happiness? They actually sort of ponder this idea. How does Augustine define the nature of happiness? He lets his students uh, define it um, in order to exercise them philosophically. In the Confessions, he provides a very beautiful, succinct definition of happiness. Happiness is joy in truth. Everyone is going to see the truth in the afterlife. Uh, The damned will see it and gnash their teeth. Uh, whereas the elect will see it and rejoice. So happiness is joy in truth. I'll go with that. The ne- uh, <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and how does this volume conclude? Also with the, the religious ending um, and with some bittersweet news. He basic, the group basically concludes that we cannot be happy in this life. We cannot have total possession of God as we would like. We're still in a veil of tears, but we can look forward to happiness in the next life, and we can also um, enjoy some happiness by virtue of our Christian hope here and now. Okay. The third volume is called On Order. So we move from truth to happiness to order. What is the situation in this dialogue? On order is a fascinating dialogue. It may be the hardest one to understand because it deals with very thorny issues of what we call today theodicy. How do you reconcile God's goodness and his omnipotence with the fact that there is evil in the world. 
Right. You, and, you, you actually contrast the omnipotence and the omnibenevolence. Why doesn't yep. the omnibenevolence, <laughs> omnibenevolence, yep. and God's omnipotence, why doesn't that eliminate evil from the world? In fact, how can it not eliminate evil from the world if it's an omni thing? Exactly. And this is a question that is always going to plague Christianity, um, and not without warrant. If if the Christian claims about God are true, then it makes the problem of evil much more acute. You know, notice the pagans didn't have to worry about this because they just had these polytheistic gods. None of them were omnipotent, and none of them were omnibenevolent. So, uh, of course, there's evil when you've got a bunch of screwy gods running around. But when you've got a Christian God, it, it becomes a different, uh, different game altogether. And how... Well, before getting to that, uh, he makes a large issue out of solitude. Really, the, the, the importance of solitude for, for, yes. for people. What, why is solitude for important? I mean, we've got, I mean, Professor Foley, we, we, with social media, we never have to be alone ever again. Isn't that a wonderful thing? <laughs> That's right. And, and we've got to be clear here, by solitude, he doesn't necessarily mean, you know, Descartes sort of withdrawing himself in his cabin and uh, is, is disconnected from everyone else. Augustine, and this is a good theme for Lent as well, Augustine recommends a, developing a habit of withdrawing from the senses. Not that the senses are bad, but that in our daily lives, we tend to be overly reliant on the senses in such a way that we start to think of all reality as material, hmm. uh, that the, the only thing that's real is what is accessible to one of my five bodily senses. And so Augustine recommends um, finding ways of reminding yourself that that's not true. You know, I think that that, I think that that is a point of genius right there. Another Augustinian point that is so relevant to our time that if you, if you surround people with stimulation, constant sensory stimulation, where they're always walking around with earbuds, always with your eyes tied to a screen, you will start to believe that the, you'll, you'll just sort of fall into the belief that the world is all perceptual, sensual, uh, just, just sensory data. And exactly that, 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 that's almost a, it's almost the result of this mental habit of not Pulling back, you know, going reflective a little bit, being contemplative, uh, not not having your brain filled with that blooming, blood buzzing confusion of of, of stimuli. I think I think uh, we, we need to pass this along to to Generation Z right now, Professor Foley. <laughs> Absolutely, and this is a human problem. It's been with us since the dawn of time, but you're absolutely right that our Modern technology does make the problem much worse. I, I would push, you know, if, if young people could read these dialogues, even a few pages at a time, I think I'm going to try and have my son 
go start reading some of these dialogues. Just read two pages out loud to me, my boy. I, I think yeah. I might try doing that, <laughs> try doing that over the over the next few weeks. Let me ask, what is uh, the conclusion to this dialogue? The conclusion is a surprising one. It, it's not the standard approach to theodicy. We, we mentioned the problem, right? You've got this three-legged school, stool, omnipotence, omnibenevolence, and then evil. And then how do you reconcile the three? Uh, later authors like C.S. Lewis will reconcile the three logically by showing how there is no contradiction between having all three. But Augustine doesn't actually go for a logical solution what he does is he pivots about two-thirds of the way into the dialogue. And basically, instead of providing the answer, he talks about the conditions that would be necessary in a person for them to understand the answer. Um, and that's where the solitude comes in. He basically says the only way you are going to understand evil is if you understand being and non-being. And the only way you can understand being and non-being is to have a certain kind of self-knowledge. And so what I'm going to talk to you about the things you should study in order to gain this particular kind of self-knowledge that will unlock uh, the answer to your questions. You know, uh, there, there's so much more to, to talk about in, in, in Volume 4. There are questions about pure truth. You have the tales of Dionysus and Simonides uh, that yep. go into the discussion. Um, but but we're, we're, we're out of time on that. Uh, for our listeners, these are four volumes. They're very handsome. New translations of St. Augustine's uh, earlier works uh, that, that uh, should fill out your bookshelf of the Confessions and, and, and City of God. But uh, until then, Professor Foley, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's good talking to you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.